Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon, and I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. There's an interesting piece in Consortium News entitled, Questions Abound About Bucha Massacre. The West has made a snap judgment about who is responsible for the massacre at the Ukrainian town of Bucha with calls for more stringent sanctions on Russia. But the question of guilt is far from decided, writes Joe Lauria. For insight into this, let's turn to our first guest. He's an international relations and security analyst based in Moscow, Mark Schloboda. As always, Mark, welcome back. Dr. Leon Garland, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the Critical Hour. Thank you, sir. So, Loria writes, within hours of news Sunday that there had been a massacre at Bucha, a town 63 kilometers north of the Ukrainian capital, the verdict was in. Russian troops had senselessly slaughtered hundreds of innocent civilians as they withdrew from the town, leaving their bodies littering the streets. Unlike their judicial systems, when it comes to war, Western nations dispense with the need for investigations and evidence and pronounce guilt based on political motives. Russia is guilty. Case closed. You know, Mark, when I first heard this story, it didn't make sense to me. And now we know that Russia has been twice denied requests to the U.N. Security Council to meet in session to discuss the Ukrainian military's provocation in Bucha. And uh, according to um, the foreign ministry spokesperson, Maria Zakharova, and she said yesterday, the current U.N. Security Council president, Britain, acting in accordance with its worst traditions, once again refused to give consent to holding a Security Council meeting on Bucha. Mark, it makes no sense to me that a country would engage in atrocities and then within hours call for a U.N. Security Council investigation into the atrocities they just committed. Yeah, I mean, that is a contradiction, uh, an obvious contradiction in the narrative that is being you know, put out by uh, the regime in Kiev and just, you know, Absolutely, there is zero questioning of it, zero criticality of it, despite the long, long train of disinformation and fake stories about what has been happening in Ukraine, from from the hoax of Snake Island to the ghost of Kiev to the ma- maternity hospital bombing in Mariupol, time and again, and uh, you know the Western media repeats these, and then even when they are debunked or proven false, they refuse to correct the stories. In fact, I have seen them referred to as noble lies in the Western press. (laughs) Noble lies, because they keep morale up and keep the Ukrainian troops fighting for this regime that is lying, right? Creating, you know, blatant, uh, sometimes even crude disinfo that, you know, someone with the slightest bit of criticality 
honesty and, and objective journalism would say, hey, uh, maybe maybe we better look into this before we just repeat uh, what, uh, you know, the, the regime in Kiev is saying as if that's actually what happened. Again and again, this happens. And there is also a complete absence from the narrative being spun of the wealth of evidence that the Kiev regime is committing war crimes, right? Uh, the number of videos that have surfaced from Ukrainian social media channels, from these some of these far-right fighters, wh where a lot of it comes from themselves, posting videos of themselves torturing and executing Russian prisoners of war, and the hundreds and hundreds of witnesses, particularly in Mariupol, but in other parts of the country, that have come forward and said that they were terrorized by Azov. Azov was killing civilians who were trying to flee. Or the you know open Ukrainian media reports um, from Kiev of officials and other people who have been deemed traitors in the capital being summarily executed right on the streets in broad daylight by uh, either the Ukrainian intelligence services, the SPU in a couple of incidences, or uh, some of the far-right battalions themselves, although it, it, it should be said that there's so much crossover between the two at this point that there is uh, very little distinction between them. And this is not something that's repeated in the Western media, even though the Ukrainian media not only acknowledges of it, but talks about it in approving tones. Um, and, you know, that brings us to this incident in uh, Bucha, where um, there is a very real possibility that at least some of the people who died there were deemed uh, collaborators and were killed on an announced uh, cleansing of the city uh, by the Ukrainian National Police. Uh, which has long been infiltrated uh, by uh, the far-right uh, forces uh, yeah, out of some of these far-right battalions, these neo-Nazi battalions, uh, they announced that they were going to hunt the city for collaborators, that they were going to be cleansed. And then two days later, suddenly there is all of these bodies discovered. And, oh, it was a Russian massacre four days after the Russian troops leave the city. There's a lot of questions there. Now, uh, there has actually been some credible reporting since where the New York Times reported this morning that uh, uh, that on the particular street in question that foreign reporters were drove down where there are a number of bodies that there were impact craters that at least a number of the people uh, there were uh, uh, several pictures of, of someone who was riding a bike at a time someone who had obviously been shopping and, and had a bag of potatoes that fell onto the ground next to their body. It looks like these people, at least some of them died in artillery shelling, right? Uh, either uh, it would seem to be, because there's no reports of the Russians after withdrawing shelling the city, probably by Ukrainian uh, forces, um, uh, in the time uh, right before the Russians left the city, giving them a, a parting shot, if you were. Now, for those that's the case, that would be considered collateral damage, right? It's very unlikely that they intended to kill uh, Ukrainian civilians. So that would simply be an, 
an, an accidental death of war, a collateral damage that was then being presented as if it's some type of Russian massacre. But that is clearly probably not the case for the large numbers of people we have seen, some of them with white armbands, their hands tied behind their back. And there is the very real possibilities that these were deemed collaborators by the Ukrainian police. We've seen videos of them moving through Bucha, talking to each other about their rules of engagement uh, on videos posted by uh, some of these far-right forces and the territorial defense themselves, where they were saying, uh, you know, um, those people without blue armbands, can we just shoot them? And they replied, yes, just someone without a blue armband indicating Ukrainian military or at least someone, you know, actively supporting them. It's just OK to shoot them. Um, and with the number of these uh, uh, bodies that we've seen with white armbands, which are supposed to indicate uh, that uh, Russian troops or civilians who were collaborating with the Russians, uh, this seems that a very real possibility that uh, at least some of these uh, uh, bodies were summarily executed as traitors, as collaborators by uh, the uh, Ukrainian uh, police uh, and nationalist forces doing as they openly announced and posted on uh, uh, the internet that they were conducting a cleansing sweep of the city uh, against collaborators. And I think any Western journalist should ask the question, well, how many collaborators did you find and what did you do with them? But no one is asking that question. Mark, since I think we, we have to start calling your, um, your segment the false flag of the week, Let's go back to last week's false flag. No, I think this is the week before. Last week was chemical weapons. But anyway, one of these week's false flags, there was a pregnant woman who was allegedly there was a hospital bombing and she was wheeled out of the hospital. And, oh, an entire complex in hospital was was leveled. A maternity hospital was leveled by the Russians. And there was three deaths. I found that a little bit weird. But at any rate, it appears that the woman has shown up and the story as we would have guessed, wasn't quite as it was presented. Are you familiar with that? Yes, um, this is a, there's an excellent piece on that. I mean, this has been reported widely, though not in Western media, uh, not in the mainstream media, but uh, the gray zone uh Kit Clarenberg did an excellent piece on the gray zone about exactly this new witness testimony about Mariupol Maternity Hospital airstrike follows pattern of Ukrainian deceptions, media malpractice. I strongly encourage everyone to read and uh, this for themselves. Watch the videos there of what this woman who was on all of these photographs from an AP reporter who was embedded with the neo-Nazi death squad Azov, which raises a lot of questions in and of itself, right? Uh, certainly ethical questions uh, about the journalist reporting. I mean, embedded with the Ukrainian troops is one thing. Embedded with neo-Nazis, that's, that, that's a, something entirely different. Uh, but, you know, it's, it, you know, it, as can be expected, it's pretty much uh, the opposite of what uh, the, the, this, the Western and U, the uh, Kiev regime media were reporting, that this maternity hospital was taken over by Azov, used as a firing position. Most of the people were moved out of it, and there is no evidence that an airstrike uh, took place. Uh, uh, there was damage done to the building, but there's a lot of questions, uh, some minor damage done to the building. There's no questions about exactly how it was done. 
Um, and uh, th- this woman, you know, goes through how uh, Azov took over the maternity hospital, was stealing the uh, ration food that was to be given to to uh, the, the the few people in the ma- the ma- the maternity ward that were still in the hospital when Azov had already taken up position there, and that itself is definitely a war crime. Right. Let, let, if, if you are taking up a position in a hospital that still has as military with still has civilians uh, in it, then you're the one committing the war crime. That's the way the Geneva Conventions, the rules of laws work. Uh, so this definitely needs to be investigated, just like the incident at, at Buka. But it needs to be a U.N. organized, truly inner national investigation. The EU is already trying to get their investigators on the ground in Bucha to, uh, you know, as far as I can see, to, you know, uh, legitimize, you know, to just rubber stamp the Ukrainian narrative. Let's not pretend that the EU are impartial. They are parties to this conflict no they are arming they are arming and funding you know uh the kiev regime forces as proxies you know the nato countries the west the eu you know they're all the same thing um and uh i'm, I'm sorry they are not an impartial uh um investigator in this case and it, it should not be that they are the one who rubber stamps and conden- conducts the investigation why it's so important that the UN Security Council calls on a truly impartial investigation consisting of personnel from neutral third party countries and the Europeans are not them we have just about 2 minutes left first point when you talked about AP reporters being embedded with neo-Nazis and you expressed your disgust with that. Well, Donald Trump told us that there are good people on both sides, Mark, so I don't know why you have a problem with that. But with that having been said, how does... Uh, wait a minute. Oh, yes. Biden's changed it. The good people are only on the Nazi side now. Oh, oh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for that clarity. Appreciate it. So quickly, how, with you just talking about the difference between the EU investigation and the UN investigation... How does one trust the U.N. investigation where, as I said in the opening, Russia has been twice denied requests to the Security Council to meet in session to discuss this issue? We have just about a minute. Yeah, okay. Actually, I do agree that there are good people on both sides of this conflict, you know, at least from their own perspectives. But the literal state-armed and funded neo-Nazi death squads of the Kiev regime are, are not definitely not, are not, are not, <laughs> not, not, not included in that. No, okay. never. Right. No, it's it, absolutely not. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, there's no excuse for this. There, There is literally no justification of why the UK, as the president of the UN Security Council, is preventing this from being discussed at the UN Security Council uh, and, you know, the calling for a real UN investigation, other than they want to get the story straight. They want to make sure the facts on the ground are what they are supposed to be and that the, the EU gets their inspectors in first to, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, establish set, set the, narrative. the narrative facts on the ground, mm-hmm. right, as if they are impartial investigators okay. and they are not. It needs to be the UN. It needs to be neutral countries that are not connected with either side of this conflict. Mark Schlaboda, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis and we look forward to having you back. 
Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Congress expected to increase Biden's $813 billion military budget request. Republicans and some Democrats are calling for more military spending. For the 2023 fiscal year, Biden requested a massive $813 billion military budget, about a 4% increase from $782 billion that was approved for 2022. But for hawks in Congress, that does not seem to be quite enough. Well, for insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. She's the co-founder of Code Pink, Medea Benjamin. As always, Medea, welcome back. Hey, nice to be on with you. So Republicans are largely united in their calls for more military spending than what Biden wants. Uh, Republican hawks want the military budget to take inflation into account and add real growth on top of that. Last month, inflation reached 7.9 percent a 40-year record high, and there are a number of Democrats that are on board with this as well. This is a ugly rabbit hole that they're taking us down, Medea Benjamin. Well, it certainly is, and of course, their most recent justification is the war in Ukraine and confronting Russia, but you know, this has been happening year after year, and so there's always some excuse if it were not Russia it would be China. And I wish in all of this they would uh, do some kind of correlation between those who are calling for more money for the military and the money they take from these weapons manufacturers. Um, one would think that that would be illegal in a form of bribery, but it's indeed the case that the very Congress people who want to spend more and more on the military. Uh, tend to be in the armed services committees, the foreign relations committees, and they take a lot of money from these weapons manufacturers. And of course, uh, we know that these weapons manufacturers have factories in just about every single congressional district. And so it becomes a jobs issue as well. But it's very obscene. And it's a yearly uh, spectacle we see. And I just don't know how we're going to reverse this. Well, you know, there are some things going on economically in the same way that the way the British uh, reversed it was the pound sterling crashed. Uh, we could be heading in that direction, Medea. But um, here are my thoughts, too. And, and I tend to think about this. You know, as we say, you know, people are like, Obama was terrible. He did this. Oh, my gosh. Trump was horrible. Can you believe what he did? Oh, Biden's the worst president ever. He did this. Certain things are very consistent, and these things come through Congress. And to some extent, as we overfocus on who the latest public relations face is for the oligarchs, you know, perhaps we're missing the boat a little bit in that the real work is in Congress. And let me add this. The most hawkish people are in Congress, even whether it's Biden or Trump or whoever. Every time they try to make a deal with Iran or whoever it is, the real hawks that try to kill it and increase prices are in are in Congress. So are we over focusing on the president and letting the people in Congress get off the hook? 
Well, I think so. I mean, the the budgets that come from the White House uh, tend to be grotesquely over uh, uh, over budget to begin with, and then you have Congress that just adds more. But you're right, and uh, I am someone who, in the pre-COVID days, would just be going to the congressional hearings uh, constantly, and it was a an exercise in. Um, futility to try to bring a message of peace and sanity to those hearings because um, the uh, rhetoric coming from these Congress people is just uh, astounding. And it's not just empty rhetoric because they do have the power of the purse string. And so they are constantly moving us closer and closer to military confrontation. And you mentioned Iran. you know, in this case, I think you can put the blame more on the White House, Garland, because really that is something that President Biden could have done from day one and instead uh, has waited all this time. And we still don't have an Iran nuclear deal. But as soon as assuming one is in the offing, as soon as it happens, you will hear the congressional hawks just howling to say, uh, how can we stop this? So, yeah, it's coming from Congress for sure, but let's not uh, get the White House off the hook either. Well, a couple of things, Medea. One, I hear the hounds of Baskerville howling, and the deal hasn't even been done yet. To Garland's point, I think it's a matter of good cop, bad cop, that you've got Biden on the campaign trail promising all of these social programs only to find out that he can then turn around and say, well, Congress didn't let me do it. Uh, I think there's more collusion than there is uh, independent operation. The other thing I wanted to throw out there was this thing I I seem to recall back during at the end of the Clinton administration, we were talking about something called the peace dividend. And it's been subsequent wars since the Clinton administration that has always prevented this so-called peace dividend from manifesting itself. And we've been told a number of times that that's by design. But unfortunately, Americans either have very short memories or they refuse to connect the dots to understand they're getting played. This is not an accident. They're just flat out getting played. Well, we certainly um, could have had a peace dividend after the pullout from Afghanistan. And uh, now we have the Ukraine conflict to make sure that that doesn't happen. And uh, I know there are many in the uh, Republican Party, particularly, who are saying, why are we putting so much emphasis on Russia? It's got to be China. And so, yeah, the American people are getting played because there's always some enemy either uh, present or uh, in the offing that will be used to try to scare us into thinking that this military budget is somehow in our own interest. And instead, um, we don't have a health care system. And we're pushing our friends in Europe to make sure that their health care systems are destroyed because they're uh, being forced to spend more money on their militaries now. So, yes, we are being played when our real fear should be um, that we don't have governments that represent us. Uh, Instead, we are either... Uh, creating enemies or um, 
or or convincing the American people uh, that we've got to live in fear of some uh, other group overseas instead of in fear of the oligarchs who are stealing our money. You know, uh, and you mentioned something earlier that made me think, you was like, how do we get out of this? Does it seem to you, it does seem to me that this thing has kind of spun out, this empire thing has kind of spun out of control, particularly with these last sanctions that are clearly going to have a dramatic ne- negative effect, probably worse on the sanctioners than the sanctionees, that we're looking maybe at a time when people are going to feel the pain, the pain of their government's reckless sanctions and start looking up saying, you know what, something's gone wrong here. Uh, we see what happened with Amazon lately. We see people feeling the pain and maybe, sadly, this is what it takes. But there are some people starting to kind of wake up and there is a potential for, for, for a positive movement on the horizon. Well, I think it is unusual that the Americans feel the effect of sanctions. We've had sanctions on so many other countries for years, and we allow our government to strangle their economy, uh, and not we, we don't feel a thing. Uh, now it is different. And uh, so, yes, I think Americans, unfortunately, uh, they care much more about their own pocketbooks than they care about uh, the economic warfare that we're waging on other countries. And uh, people do revolt against uh, the kind of money they have to pay for gasoline or the increase in food prices. Uh, And I think Biden knows that very well, which is why as we get closer to the November elections, uh, he's trying hard to do something to uh, ease the pain of the Russia sanctions on the American people. Uh, But in the end, uh, what we don't feel in our daily uh, lives is the impact of spending so much money on war. Uh, It's there and it is affecting us. But the American people don't understand that spending $813 billion on military uh, is robbing us from the resources that we really need here at home. One of the very telling comments that I think went over the head or just went by a whole lot of people was back in July of 2020. The uh, then CEO of Boeing, Dave Calhoun, this was during the uh, Biden-Trump campaign, was asked who he preferred to win the election. And he said, for Boeing, it doesn't matter because they're going to get paid anyway. And Boeing's defense unit in that quarter generated $6.6 billion dollars in sales in one quarter. And so he sits there and says, doesn't matter to us. We're going to get paid anyway. And I bring that up to, 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 to highlight what we talked about at the intro here, that you have incredibly hawkish Republicans. But what a lot of people, they buy into this stereotype that the Republicans are hawks and the Democrats are doves. You've got some incredibly, incredibly hawkish Democrats as well. And folks just seem to want to give them a pass. Well, yes, I think the um, makers of the weapons have uh, found a way to have both Democrats and Republicans uh, in their camp. And uh, so we've seen their their uh, profits go up uh, year after year after year. 
And now with this war in Ukraine, it's not only the increase in the budget that we, the American people, are going to spend on militarism. It's also now the increased budgets for the Europeans that are going to be buying the weapons from those very same companies. Uh, So they're really making out like bandits with the conflict in Ukraine. So uh, might I ask you, one of the finest organizations on the face of this planet is Code Pink. Not that I'm prejudiced or biased, but I am. Um, what are you guys have any plans on? Um, do you have any plans on, you know, doing any work? Do you have anything coming up that you're doing, particularly on this issue or any other major issues that we need to know about? We have a uh, uh, an international rally calling for an end to the war in Ukraine on uh, Saturday that we have. Uh, people coming from the U.S. like Noam Chomsky and Vijay Prashad, but also from all over Europe, like the um, former finance minister of Greece, Yanis Varoufakis. And we have the um, very fiery uh, Irish prime uh, uh, member of of parliament, Clara Daly, uh, and a whole host of people uh, from around the world who will be joining on that. So you can see it on our website, codepink.org. And we're calling people to get out and do rallies uh, this weekend as well. And then as far as the Pentagon budget, uh, we have an ongoing campaign that's calling on members of Congress to sign a pledge saying they won't take money from the major weapons manufacturers. And that you can see on our website as well. Uh, It's part of our Divest from War campaign. Medea Benjamin, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thanks so much. Nice being on. Bye-bye. Thank you, Medea. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Michael Hudson writes, U.S. dollar hegemony ended abruptly last Wednesday. On Wednesday, the 23rd of March, the U.S. announced that it would freeze Russia's access to its gold. Russia has the fifth highest amount of gold in the world. Economist Michael Hudson explains that this action, which follows the U.S. seizing Venezuela and Afghanistan's gold and assets, has effectively ended the hegemony, which has been in decline in recent years, and the free ride that the U.S. has enjoyed abroad. What are we to make of this? Let's turn to our next guest. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, former president of the National Economics Association, Dr. Linwood Tahid. As always, sir, welcome back. Thank you. So Hudson states that we are now in uncharted territory as nothing like this has occurred in modern history. Your thoughts, Dr. Linwood Tahid. Is this sanctions policy, particularly as it relates to the seizure of assets, is this backfiring on the United States? Uh, yes, yes, it is. It uh, you know not, this is not the first time that the U.S. has uh, seized foreign assets. It did it with Iran, Venezuela, and and other much much smaller countries that were very much dependent 
upon uh, the U.S. Iran, you might not think, is dependent, but 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 Iran sells oil, and so uh, U.S. being a major purchaser of oil uh, becomes uh, Iran becomes affected by by those seizures. But but Russia is a is a different animal. Uh, Russia is a a modern country. It produces things. It I well, wouldn't say that about about the Soviet Union, but this is not the Soviet Union. And uh, Russia is a a huge uh, supplier of oil and gas and fertilizer and precious metals and other kinds of things, semiconductor substrates uh, to the rest of the world. Russia is is not a, a country that cannot um, defend itself against sanctions. Now, you know, the U.S. grabs Russian reserves of dollars and gold. Well, that means that those those that dollars and golds are in U.S. banks uh, because Russia, uh, the international monetary and, and currency system, was uh, you know had an agreement that you know my gold is in your bank, but when I want it back, I should be able to get it back. The U.S. has broken that agreement, which means that other countries that have gold. And U.S. banks also wonder when they're going to be uh, the victim of that same kind of action. If you can do it to Russia, then you can certainly do it to any other smaller or less powerful uh, non-nuclear country. And so this is causing even Germany to to want to get its gold back from uh, the U.S. banks uh, back to Germany. And so other countries in the world are are reacting to this unprecedented move. You know, uh, uh, Dr. Tawheed, there's a contradictory, one might almost argue paradoxical nature to these sanctions in that Mm -hmm. Russia sells certain things. And now people, the international market people are learning about just how important actual commodities are as opposed to magical things like derivatives and asset-backed securities. And in sanctioning and in sanctioning Russia and in destabilizing the market, they have driven up the price of the very commodities that Russia sells. So we see now that Russia's set to make more money this year as far as gas and oil and other commodities than they made last year. And to even further this strange paradigm, the very countries that are that are sanctioning Russia to supposedly hurt it are driving up the price of these commodities and they're the ones that have to buy the commodities from Russia. It seems like maybe they'd have thought this through a little bit, little bit better. But I guess if they had, they wouldn't have done these foolish things in the in the in the in the first place. But it seems kind of strange to me. Well, it it uh, yeah, I, it seems as if the uh, the only entity uh, that has actually th- thought this through is a U.S. gas and oil producers, because if the price of gas and oil goes up. Yeah, the Russians can 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 get more for their oil if they can sell it, but certainly the U.S. Uh, can get more for its oil and gas, and it's poised, or at least it's trying to make agreements to sell those uh, that oil and gas to uh, to uh, European countries to replace um, um, uh, Russian oil and gas. But the problem is that that mechanism takes a long time to get in place. Uh, if you sell uh, U.S. oil and gas to uh, Europe, you, if you become the supplier of that oil, that means that there's a, a, a shortage of oil and gas here and in, in the U.S. Uh, we were already being hit by supply chain shortages and inflation and so forth. So you'll find increasing oil and gas prices in the U.S., uh, in Europe, uh, in order to, to, uh, to uh, continue these sanctions against Russia. 
but but that that is to the benefit of American oil and gas companies. They can simply raise their prices much more than inflation would warrant, and have windfall profits as we've seen uh, them them having now. So so the entity that's being that's driving this is U.S. oil and gas, uh, and uh, they they'll benefit, and the rest of the world will suffer. You can raise the price of grain. You can raise the price of fertilizer, uh, but that has a direct impact on the cost of food. If you look at fertilizer as the front end of the process, and then you you look at meat production, for example, on the back end of the process, between the fertilizer and the grain to feed the animals, you're you're incurring additional cost throughout a big part of the process. And the United States, that's something that they can't control. And so when you start to deal with people's kitchen tables and when you start to deal with people's stomachs, you wind up having or creating a circumstance that becomes very, very difficult for you to manage. It's one thing to tell people at the pump that's Putin's price hike. It's another thing to tell folks who can't now afford to feed their families call Vladimir Putin for dinner. It, it That's hard. That's hard to get people to do. The United States seems to be creating a real problem on the ground, whether it be politically or whether it be reactionary, violent reaction when, when folks really start to get hungry. Well, yes, uh, the, the U.S. is putting Euro, uh, European countries, uh, those NATO countries and, and non-NATO countries, into a bind. They're, they're in the middle of this war. I mean, Ukraine is not the only um, um, entity at war in this process. Uh, it, it, it's all of Europe that, that has to make a decision as to whether or not they're going to, to uh, continue on uh, subverting or ignoring their own national interests for the interests of the U.S., or whether they're going to 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 move in a way that that makes them um, um, independent of U.S. of such U.S. influence. Now, you know, we we said uh, many times that you know European countries have parliamentary systems that can be dissolved you know, very quickly, mm-hmm. and a new government can come in into effect. The U.S. doesn't have that, so so that's to quote stability in the U.S. Uh, prevents uh, a, a change, a lot of reaction. There will be a, a much reaction to this, but but government is is probably not going to change here. In in Europe, that's something different. And and then you all, you also have countries in what's called the global South, uh, 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 Africa, and uh, and uh, South America, and and many of the Asian countries who were uh, customers of Russia in terms of fertilizer. Uh, they were using dollars to to buy that fertilizer uh, uh, from from Russia. And now, since the Russians uh, cannot do business in in dollars, they're going to have to figure out how to how to buy that rush that that fertilizer and that grain from Russia. And if they're not going to do it in dollars, then there are currencies that are poised to 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 replace the dollars, such as the one and such as the ruble. And so you, you you find the majority of African countries, for example, did not shoot themselves in the foot by condemning Russia because they realize that they are major customers of Russia for grain mm-hmm. and fertilizer. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's this old adage that countries that, that trade don't go to war. Mm-hmm. Well, you can expect them, since they're major traders with Russia, not to go to war with Russia for U.S. interests. 
You know, the talk about dollar hegemony um, generally uh, now devolves into what's going to be the new global currency. But here's how I see it. If um, Russia and India, they do a lot of trade. Well, if I buy, if Russia buys stuff in rupees and vice versa and they need to buy stuff back, they can just buy stuff back with the rupees and rubles. What if there is a new paradigm in which instead of a global currency, there's some exceptional global currencies, maybe the yuan, maybe the ruble, whatever the case may be, the larger countries. But then a lot of countries start doing business in their own currencies when they're going back and forth, they strengthen their currencies. They're not um, attached to the dollar, so they can't be manipulated by the U.S. empire, and um, it benefits them. So what if we get a new where there's low, there's kind of local currencies used a lot more as opposed to one kind of hegemonic currency? Well, well President Putin announced about a month ago that they were looking on the crypto side. Yeah, exactly. So, so, so. That And when he said that before a lot of this other stuff jumped off, that was a signal to me that he was saying, we've already been thinking about this. Yeah. We're light years ahead of y'all. Go, go ahead, Dr. Tahid. Yes, I, I think, I think uh, uh, Garland's observation that uh, there is uh, growing a, a bilateral trade in, in the, each country's sovereign currency is, uh, I think, yes, I think that will be the new paradigm. There will be uh, exceptional currencies like the, the Juan uh, like the ruble, that that if you don't have enough of your own currency, uh, you can do you can do trade in in those other currencies. But but yes, it's 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 to the advantage of each of these countries to do trade in the in their own currency because they can they can create that currency and not have to find dollars or gold or any other kind of currency uh, in order to to trade. And so that that makes it easier for countries in Africa, in South America that want to trade with Russia and China to trade because they can trade in their own currency. So I think, yes, I think that is. And so when we talk about a multipolar world, we're talking about the, the, you know, the dollar and euro on one side. And on the other side, there will be many currencies that will uh, be used for trade between uh, major countries. Uh, those major countries will be would be Russia and China. And and so yes, for for the Chinese, for the Russians, not to want to lock other countries into into getting rubles, I think is is very smart. I, I we could have a discussion about cryptocurrency. I don't think that's a smart way to go because cryptocurrency can can be hacked. And to wrap this up, uh, following on Michael Hudson, U.S. dollar hegemony ended abruptly. Once the train has left the station here, the 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 horse is out of the barn. It seems to me that now it's going to be incredibly, incredibly difficult, if not impossible, for the United States to recapture the power of the dollar that it has now relinquished. Yes, I agree. I mean, if you if the U.S., U.S. policymakers believe that they are the single uh, hegemon in the in the world and that they can simply make other countries do what they want to do and then they overplay their hand by by uh, making it uh, obvious that they cannot stick to their agreements, even even agreements in, in terms of the currency system, then what they do is force other countries to find alternatives to to trade uh, because uh, they, they have they have to feed their people and they have to uh, you know uh, do those very necessary things. They have to make sure that that, that folks are, are warm in, in winter and, and cool in the summer. And if you're going to try to uh, to, to 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 bully 
other countries into depriving their citizens of, of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, you cannot do that uh, if you are not uh, uh, able to go to war with those countries. I mean, little war with those countries. And uh, the U.S. Uh, is on one side and China and uh, Russia on the other side. And they're nuclear powers, too. And so uh, going to war uh, over, over this type of, 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 of uh, U.S. hegemony is not what uh, Africa or Europe or South America is wanting to do. They're wanting to get on with their business to, to, to uh, make their citizens' lives better. I'm glad you put it in that context. As we get out, we got about 30 seconds. When the Uni- when United States seizes gold assets, isn't that an act of war? Uh, yes, uh, you know Michael Hudson, uh, memory him says finance is war by other uh, by other means, mm-hmm. and 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 so yes, by declaring war by by seizing assets, you have alerted other countries that they need to protect themselves. Dr. Linwood Tawhid, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, and I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There's a piece in Counterpunch entitled, Why Biden Can't Woo the Middle East. It's by John Rule. And uh, he writes, for decades, U.S. policy in the Middle East has relied on coordination with the Saudi-led Gulf states, Israel, Egypt, and Turkey. Since the Obama administration, however, relations between Washington and its core regional allies in the Middle East have floundered, confounding the United States' ability to manage Middle Eastern crises and formulate consensus in the region. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He holds the Morris Professorship of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. He's one of the most prolific writers of our time. His latest book is entitled The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, sir, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. So your thoughts on the issues that now confound the United States as it relates to U.S. policy in the region? Well, I think the author has stumbled on a fundamental accuracy. What I'm suggesting is that not only in West Asia or what we refer to as the Middle East, do you see a recalibration with erstwhile allies feeling that they no longer can rely upon U.S. imperialism. But in part, this is a result of the foreign ministries of the countries you've mentioned taking the measure of U.S. imperialism and finding it wanting. You see this in particular with regard to the current crisis in Eastern Europe, which probably will lead and already is leading to de-dollarization. That is to say, the weakening of the U.S. currency as a global reserve currency uh, used in transactions uh, worldwide. And that, in return, is a reflection of the weakening of U.S. imperialism. The currency is only a leading indicator of the strength or lack thereof 
of U.S. imperialism. And if you go down the list, you will also readily see that U.S. imperialism is not able to bail out leaders of these nations when they may be in trouble, and in fact, may be actually spearheading the trouble that these leaders find themselves in. Look at Turkey, for example, where you know that in 2016, there was an attempted coup against President Erdogan that he and his party blamed on U.S. imperialism. They pointed to the fact that his main opponent, Fatullah Gulen, lives in comfortable exile in the Poconos in Pennsylvania and wields significant influence from the Atlantic to the Pacific, including, uh, I should add, in terms of funding uh, charter schools in black American communities, including in Texas. If you look at Egypt, not only could U.S. imperialism not rescue Hosni Mubarak, who fell victim to the so-called Arab Spring about a decade or so ago, but uh, Mr. Mubarak's children and allies, he's now passed away, uh, feel that Washington pulled the rug out from under him. If you look at Israel, it's a very intriguing case because Israel is being criticized, admittedly, with self-voices in Washington because of its stated policy of neutrality concerning the Ukraine crisis. However, uh, this is probably a reflection of the fact that Israel has taken the measure of the global correlation of forces. After all, Israel has been accused credibly of leaking sophisticated U.S. military technology to the People's Republic of China and probably feels that it's not a wise bet to continue to rely wholly and unduly on U.S. imperialism. If you look at Sudan, for example, Mr. al-Bashir has been ousted from power. You have, as we speak, uh, standing trial in the Hague, some of his former Confederates and comrades who were accused of horrific war crimes in Darfur and are slated if the prosecutor approves his or her case, these defendants are slated to spend uh, a long term behind bars. And so Washington is hardly able to rescue its erstwhile allies. And as noted, Washington oftentimes conspires against those who are thought to be its erstwhile allies. Dr. Horn, the other thing, I think a couple of things that I'd like to get you to comment on, and that is how the situation in Pakistan um, affects the view of the, um, you know, the people who are in charge, uh, you know, the, the rulers in um, in the Middle East who have typically either, you know, been clo- been tight with the U.S. or not. Do you th- And do you think that um, attempted uh, ouster and a very, very blatant <laughs> attempted coup in, um, in in Pakistan affects this dynamic? Well, Pakistan is a very interesting case. Uh, Prime Minister Imran Khan was on the verge a few days ago of being removed from power. Obviously, U.S. imperialism has had it up to its keister with Mr. Khan. Recall that after August 15, 2021, and the takeover in Kabul of Afghanistan, uh, (laughs) Imran Khan actually stood and applauded, which came as a blow to the ego if not the geostrategic pretensions of U.S. imperialism. 
but he has been able to maneuver legally to call a snap election on the platform that he is resisting the manipulations of U.S. imperialism, and U.S. imperialism is not very popular uh, in Pakistan, so he may uh, wind up uh, in the driver's seat, although the military, uh, which is the ultimate force uh, in Islamabad, the capital, uh, might not go along with Mr. Imran Khan because they're closer to Washington. But although, interestingly enough, even the leader of the military, uh, when he was asked to comment upon the Moscow intervention in Ukraine, all he could muster was that he considered it to be, quote, unfortunate, unquote. And as you know, Imran Khan, the bone of contention with Washington, is that he was in Moscow February 24th, which was not seen as coincidental, February 24th, of course, being the pivotal day for the intervention. And so it seems to me that Imran Khan is maneuvering. He recognizes that Moscow and New Delhi, New Delhi being his perpetual antagonist or close, and he feels that in order to maneuver more effectively against New Delhi, he has to edge closer to Moscow. And what this bespeaks, once again, is the fact that U.S. imperialism hardly bestrides the planet like the colossus that it considers itself to be, And I think that that may help to explain the desperation uh, of U.S. imperialism uh, with this riverboat gamble, to use the term George W. Bush used to use, with regard to its all-out intervention in Eastern Europe, seeking to create a new Afghanistan in the heart of Europe. And by the way, we'll have an indication of how that strategy will evolve or eventually in a few days, when you have the election in France, where President Macron, who has been a sidekick, if you like, of U.S. imperialism, which is quite uh, striking for France, which oftentimes speaks about its so-called strategic autonomy. But Mr. Macron has candidates from the left and the right who are pressing him. And if he falls below the numbers that pollsters are predicting are, heaven forfend, If he loses this election, it seems to me all bets are off with regard to this riverboat gamble in Ukraine. How does the shift towards China factor into all of this as the United States tries its best to still somehow manage Israel, manage uh, the Saudis, uh, the Emiratis? How does the shift towards China by U.S. policy factor into all of this? Well, I'm glad you mentioned the Saudis, because as you know, the Wall Street Journal reported some days ago that their leaders refused to answer the phone when Mr. Biden called. Mm -hmm. The Saudis are in active conversation with China about selling its precious petroleum and receiving in return Chinese renminbi, Chinese currency, a devastating blow to the pretensions of the U.S. dollar. Apparently, the Emiratis have acted similarly. Uh, with regard to not returning or accepting Mr. Biden's phone calls. And once again, I think it's apparent that foreign ministries all over planet Earth are coming to the conclusion that we are undergoing a Copernican shift in the global correlation of forces. For the first time in centuries, you will have as the leading power 
not only a power not defined as, quote, white, unquote, but an Asian power. <laughs> but not only that, <laughs> despite the trillions spent to fight communism, you have a, a party led by a communist party, the Communist Party of China, the largest political organization on planet Earth with 90 million plus members, uh, basically being the shot callers and the high rollers with regard to what's going on on planet Earth. So this is something that all nations have to take account of, and all nations are taking account of this. And uh, the, the other thing I, I wanted to ask you um, about is recently we heard that Turkey is now they're now talking of, you know, talking with Syria about some kind of rapprochement. How do you think Syria fits into this new paradigm? It seems to me that Turkey's talking with Syria. We've heard um, rumor that, you know, uh, Tur uh, that Syria was in the midst of the discussions between Saudi Arabia and Yemen to try to you know, the bring Emiratis. that to close the Emiratis. Where, how does Syria fit in here? Well, as you know, Syria has broken out of this diplomatic isolation. President al-Assad was welcomed warmly in uh, the Emirates uh, just a few days or weeks ago. We also know that at one time, as recently as before the uprising in Damascus, that Turkey and Syria were quite close. The families of al-Assad and Erdogan used to vacation together. And then Erdogan, perhaps overestimating the strength of U.S. imperialism and Israeli neocolonialism, flipped. But now, apparently, he's willing to flip again, which is one more bit of evidence about how the global winds and currents are shifting. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you are listening to the Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Press TV has a story, Turkey weighs possibility of starting talks with Syria. Turkish media says Ankara is evaluating the possibility of starting talks with the Syrian government and that discussions are underway for new relations to be built between the two neighbors. What are the short and long-term implications of such dialogue? And what does dialogue of this nature indicate? For insight, we turn to our next guest. He's an analyst, producer, media consultant, Laith Marouf. As always, Laith, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So Turkey's Hurriyet newspaper, citing informed sources, said yesterday that discussions were taking place in the Turkish capital of Ankara on restoring normal relations. Quote, the balanced policy recently adopted by Turkey and the role that Ankara has played in recent months, especially in resolving the war in Ukraine, have made the current time appropriate for resolving the Syrian crisis. Laith Marouf. Yeah, I mean, it's a big if because there, up to now there has been 
no real movement. Of course, the situation in Ukraine is directly affecting uh, Turkey and Syria, being so uh, geographically close. And the uh, moment right now that Turkey may see with Russia being very busy in Ukraine uh, to attempt to you know, de-escalate or find a way out that is more advantageous to them. Who knows what they're uh, going to be offering. But we know uh, yesterday the uh, special advisor of uh, President Assad was interviewed on BBC uh, Arabic and aired. It was a very important interview, one um, of the first from the uh, Syrian government on BBC Arabic in a long time, and a lot of the supporters of the opposition were really pissed at BBC for airing it. But the point is, she addressed this issue because he asked her directly about these reports from Turkish newspapers, and uh, the way she spoke about it, she analyzed the fact that the United States still occupies uh, the northeast of Syria with its Kurdish uh, contras on the ground and Turkey occupying those other parts in the north and uh, that both of those parties, the Kurdish contras and the Turkish government are um, tools of the United States. So whatever we see as movement, as long as the United States is on the ground, this will not change much in Syria. You know, um, it seems to me that as the dynamics, as the geopolitical landscape changes in the Middle East, Syria is coming, is, 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 is set in the future to be not just, you know, rejoining the Arab League, but a pretty powerful presence because of their um, number one, you know, a very strong relationship with Russia, very strong relationship with China because their geography and because I think they're seen as a um, a kind of a linchpin. They can they can reach out to both the, uh, you know, Iran to Yemen. They just have so many di- diplomatic, strong diplomatic ties with country with, with so many countries. It seems to me that they're going to really be a, a powerful presence in the future. Your thoughts? Yes, of course, uh, this is Damascus returning to its, you know, natural state. Because remember, Damascus is not only the oldest uh, capital in the world and the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world. It was also the longest serving capital of the Arab and Muslim empires, uh, the Umayyad empire. So this is one of the centers of civilization in West Asia, North Africa, um, that one of three, you know, Baghdad, Damascus, and Cairo, and the destruction of Arab and Republican and nationalist and unionist movements uh, is what gave us the unnatural situation of the uh, oil sheikhs becoming the representatives of the honorable Arab people. And so um, here, no matter what they try, you know, geography, topography, nature, history, uh, you know, requires that Damascus is a center of civilization. And therefore, this will 
come back as we see now. The one thing that everybody has to realize that the war in Syria um, over the last 11 years was even more significant, in my opinion, than the war in Ukraine, because up until now, Syria is still the only battle zone in the world where both the American military and the Russian military are on the battlefield. Until now, that is not true in Ukraine. And that means that there is, you know, every inch of Syria liberating it is a delicate matter and uh, requires tactical ways to make sure that there is no direct confrontation between the American forces and the Russian forces, which um, over the last five years, luckily, hasn't led us to World War III in Syria. I'm glad you made that point, because as you were talking about that, what was going through my mind was, you're absolutely right. Russian forces and American forces are on the battlefield, but they seem to be doing everything within their power to stay as far away from each other as they can, because the one thing that they don't want is is conflict, which also is what is controlling a lot of the U.S. policy and U.S. allied policy in Ukraine is they don't want to send in air, airplanes, the, a lot of things they don't want to do because they don't want to escalate this into to become they want to keep it a proxy conflict they don't want it to become a direct conflict yes and uh you know in syria we were at moments that that could have become a direct conflict uh, and so a direct conflict between the two parties that are the superpowers of the world uh, is is uh, <laughs> an end of humanity so you know the way that Syria was able to liberate most of its land and uh, for the United States and Turkey to be left with these small corners of the country. Yes, they're very significant with the oil and, and wheat in, uh, in the Northeast. But, uh, you know, for Syria to be able to have done that, uh, this uh, really changed the balance in the world and set a motion to what we saw in Ukraine where Russia was not going to wait for the American and Western troops to be on the ground in Ukraine and to be stuck with that situation where uh, a possibility of a direct confrontation with, uh, between the forces. So right now, uh, I think Putin, what he did in uh, President Putin, what he did in Ukraine was a very smart move and that, uh, you know, is saving humanity from uh, worse situations that could have come. So we've been we've hear, been hearing a lot about the U.S. attempt to um, to to topple the Pakistan uh, the Pakistani government. Um, and uh, now that we've had a couple days go you know go by a chance to digest it um, in a little bit of hindsight. Of course, it's still ongoing simply because the new election hasn't happened. Um, what are your thoughts? Any new thoughts on that um, particular incident? I mean, I think. Everybody in Pakistan specifically are very worried about the uh, opinions of the generals in the military. So we have to remember that uh, the prime minister uh, created a new party um, and toppled the two dynasty parties that ruled Pakistan since its independence. Um, and, um, you know, his, his support is based on populist support as a as a former cricket uh, player and such 
And uh, therefore, um, you know, the Americans, if they failed, and which they did, in doing a coup through the parliament with the dissolve, dissolving of the parliament right now and the calling of the election, which clearly is going to give uh, Prime Minister Khan more votes even because of his uh, nationalist and populist positions uh, demanding respect for Pakistan's sovereignty and its ability to take care of its uh, population and be neutral in uh, this uh, war between Russia and the West in the Ukraine. Um, that means now the only possible avenue for the United States to uh, achieve its goals in Pakistan is through a military coup uh, if, uh, before an election. So now in the next uh, 90 days, uh, this is the where everybody is going to be watching uh, in Pakistan. Every speech that's going to be given by any general is going to be dissected word by word. Um, and uh, let's hope that the uh, generals in Pakistan are smart enough to realize the tectonic shifts happening around them in the globe and uh, to even look across the waters to see how the Emirates and uh, the Saudis and and other vessels of the United States are staying out of the fight. Uh, so uh, we'll see. This is where I'm very worried about any uh, military coup that could be coming. If Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan is able to weather this storm, if he is able to survive this and, uh, and hold on to power, this to me seems eerily reminiscent of Maduro in Venezuela, with the United States trying to impose Juan Guaido on on Venezuela. And again, if he is able to uh, stay in power, it shows another failure on behalf of United States policy, of United States dominance, and now the inability of the United States to dictate to some countries, what their politics are going to be going forward, even though Joe Biden tells us we don't do that, that we're all about democracy, and that sovereign countries should be able to determine their own destinies. Oh, yeah. I mean, like the simple fact that the United States is having to concentrate all its military might and its propaganda machine and its foreign policy machine and uh, its whole economic structure of the empire towards uh, one target, Russia. It means that the rest of the world is uh, is a loose playing field right now. And not only did we notice, obviously, this is going to mean um, more space for all the emerging poles of power in the world, like uh, Iran, like North Korea, like Venezuela, like uh, you know, a return of Syria, as we were talking just before. Uh, it also means that, uh, you know, the former vessels that are being told that they have to take care of their own neighborhood by themselves, like the Gulf monarchs and the, and the Zionists and or the Pakistanis to be left in, to face India by themselves, which India is supposedly being courted by both the Russians and the Americans. Uh, and the Chinese. So what does this mean to uh, a vessel, former vessel like Pakistan that played that huge role in the Afghan 
uh, wars that the United States conducted over the you know th- three decades there. Um, I think uh, it is time to for Pakistan to care for itself, and the least they can do is be neutral. Really quickly, we've got one more story that we wanted to get to. We may run a little long here, but I think this is important. And that has to do with Governor of Lebanon Central Bank denies bankruptcy. Riyadh Salame denied yesterday that the bank is bankrupt and said despite the size of the losses in the financial sector, the central bank continues to act in the markets as prescribed by law. To me, if the governor of the central bank has to come out and say, I'm not bankrupt, I think you're bankrupt. Oh, yeah. And he had to say that as a response to the minister of finance saying the country is bankrupt and the central bank is bankrupt. So the government doesn't have money and there's an election coming. They, they uh, you know, in the mid uh, May, it's supposed to happen. And, and what we know right now is probably the polling uh, stations are not going to have enough money to have electricity and stuff. So there's a huge scramble right now with a government that's, that can't even supposedly run an election and uh, a bank that doesn't have the money. Uh, Salami himself has uh, multiple investigations on him from French, uh, Swiss, and British uh, banks and and, and um uh, financial departments that are asking for $120 million that he smuggled himself for his own accounts. Uh, so we know that uh, he helped, uh, you know, o- almost $80 million were smuggled out of Lebanon, and he helped to do that over the period of 2018-2019. And uh, this money is there and must be brought back from the uh, European banks, um, otherwise it's, the Europeans are just going to funnel it out themselves like they do to all the other money of uh, other countries, and we're never going to see it again in Lebanon. What does this mean in practical terms in, as it relates to the person on the street? Oh, it means a lot because the uh, how the central bank has to provide the credit for importers when uh, they're bringing in the you know huge shipments of oil and gas mm-hmm. uh, and or um, you know cooking oil and stuff like this, so you need the credit from a central bank. And if the central bank doesn't have the money, how are you going to import anything? Mm-hmm. So it's a country at the edge right now. And so now, who who then does Lebanon turn to, or is this, for example, an opportunity? for Iran to step in, for Russia or China to step in and put some money on the table and and curry incredible influence for pulling their hind parts out of the fire. You know what's crazy? Just a few days ago, the foreign minister of Iran was here and in front of the president and the prime minister and the speaker of the house in his three different meetings offered to build two uh, oil refineries and, mm. and uh, electric generating plants that will cover the whole country, all for free on the bill of Iran, and uh, they have, uh, you know, didn't give them an answer because <laughs> they're not allowed by America. We'll sit by the phone because it, it might ring later on today. 
Laith yeah. <laughs> Maroof, hard times will make a monkey eat snowballs. Laith Maroof, thank you, sir. Greatly appreciate it. Look forward to having you back. You have a great evening. You too. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Patrick Lawrence has a piece in Consortium News entitled The U.S. Bubble of Pretend. The lack of objective, principled coverage of the war in Ukraine is a degenerate state of affairs. The one thing worse is the extent to which it's perfectly fine with most Americans. For further insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's an American citizen living in Crimea and a film director uh, and a podcaster, Regis Tremblay. Welcome back. Thank you. It's really good to be with you fellows. So uh, Patrick Lawrence continues, it is perfectly obvious by now to anyone who cares to look that mainstream media in America and the other Western powers are not reporting the Ukraine crisis accurately. Let me try that another way. The government supervised New York Times and the rest of the corporate owned media on both sides of the Atlantic lie routinely to their readers and viewers as to why Russia intervened in Ukraine, the progress of its military operation, the conduct of Ukrainian forces, and America's role in purposely provoking and prolonging the crisis. Your thoughts, Regis Tremblay. Well, I I couldn't agree more. Um, I think the entire United States and Western mainstream media uh, has been doing nothing but lying, uh, presenting misinformation, uh, disinformation, uh, ever since this conflict began, and uh, I, I can I can tell you this that uh, what is happening on the ground um, is not being reported anywhere in the I shouldn't say anywhere very limited exposure in the West. There are a few articles as you've mentioned that are now beginning to expose that, but it's not the mainstream. And and the thing that's that's really striking is um, in regards to this this latest false flag in Bucha, Ukraine, uh, on Sunday, just as soon as this was reported, the United States, Blinken, Biden, Macron in France, um, and Olaf in Germany are all blaming Russia, immediately blaming Russia, without showing any evidence or any proof whatsoever. And it has now since been debunked. Another false flag like we saw so often in Syria. You know, the other thing is, uh, and, 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 and this is important, you know, I've been, you know, unfortunately, sadly, I've been walking by TV every now and then and right on, on the crawl or whatever across the bottom, it says breaking news. Zelensky says and then there's the blah, blah, blah behind it. Breaking news. Zelensky says blah, 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 blah. What I find interesting is they're almost, you know, they're trying to act as though they're unbiased news reporters. They're pumping 
Ukraine full of weapons. They trained the Ukrainians. They armed the Ukrainians. They dragged them into this fight. They're actually doing these false flags and lies so that hopefully the Ukrainians will still have they say, you know, still think they have a chance and continue to get mercilessly slaughtered and drag this thing out, which they've made it clear. And and they're not allowing Zelensky to negotiate to a peace exactly. agreement. So the, the these false flags, the true to me, the true sinister thing about these false flags is it generate creates an environment where the Ukrainians and their soldiers keep fighting when that's not in their best interest because everybody knows how this is going to turn out. The sooner they throw in the towel, the better, because these are people that are really, let's face it, they're dying for no reason at this point. Your thoughts? No, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, you know, the facts are, and, and they're not being presented to the Americans and to the West. The facts are there are as many as 40,000, maybe more, foreign mercenaries, including, including ISIS fighters, who have been paid, trained, equipped, armed by the United States, by UK, by Canada, by France, and other countries to prolong this conflict as long as they can. That's what the United States want. They want this sore in the side of Russia to continue for as long as possible. And so they're doing everything they can to control Zelensky and whoever is behind him to keep this conflict going. And, you know, it's such a disgrace. It disturbs me to no end um, to know that this is all happening uh, under the control and direction of the United States government, uh, security agencies, CIA, and the Pentagon. You're in uh, Crimea. H- how is this playing out where you are uh, on, on a daily basis? What What does it mean for you walking down the street, going to the bank, going to the grocery store? What does this mean for you? Well, you know, by now, hardly anybody's talking about it. Um, from February 24th on to the first couple of weeks, um, people couldn't sleep at night. They have family and friends on both sides of the border. They worried about their welfare. And then the sanctions hit, that second round of enormous sanctions hit, and prices rose 20 to 30 percent. We just went grocery shopping today, and in some cases, some things have doubled. But I have to tell you, on the ground, um, people are going about life just as they always have. The ruble has bounced back. The banks are offering 18% interest Whoa. on deposits. Whoa. Um, yeah, yeah. And Let so me send you some money. I'm ready to say, can I get some rubles? <laughs> Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm asking them to yeah. pay me in rubles from now on. Now, why, why are they paying that high level of interest on deposits? Well, what I think is the banks need the money. Okay. Um, a, a lot of people and some of my close friends have withdrawn most of their savings from the banks right at the beginning of this conflict. I think now they'll be putting that money back. <laughs> and, uh, that's that. Now, I'm not an economist, but that's what I think is happening. Okay. So it sounds to me like, I mean, I, I think the people knew that there would be some economic pain. They're going to try to make it, but there's some stability. And from what now, the other thing I understand is that um, these kinds of false flag things aren't really 
getting anywhere in Russia, that most of the people are still in support of the um, the special operation and, you know, feel that it was something that had to be done, that they were, in fact, facing existential threats, shall we say, from NATO on their borders? Well, um, the Russian people are not worried about um, any kind of an invasion or attack on the Russian Federation. They feel they feel very safe and secure. They trust the government and they trust their president. Uh, I think we talked before that his popularity before February 24th was around 65 percent. It is now in the 80th percentile favorability in support of the Russian intervention in Ukraine. The, the vast majority of people believe that it had to be done, that Putin and the government and their uh, Ministry of Defense had no other choice but to act on February 24th when they did. You're, again, in Crimea, and people listening to this discussion might say, well, he turns on his television and his news is being produced by the Russian Federation. So, of course, he's only going to get one side of the argument, which is the Russian side of the argument. And so, you know, how uh, so people would say, well, how does Regis Tremblay know uh, what reality is? Because the spin, the Russian spin machine uh, is in full effect and only telling him one side of the story. Well, first of all, I, I don't have television. I got rid of television a long time ago before I even came here. Uh, I I only look to um, two Russian sources for my information. One is the daily report um, from the Ministry of Defense, which is very tight-lipped and very cautious about what they receive, what they reveal. Simply the facts that they report on the ground. Number of installations destroyed, tanks, military uh, uh, command centers, fuel depots, etc. The other source that I look to is TASS, the official Russian news agency. I get one other source from a person who's a good friend of mine and has very high up, before he retired in the, uh, the, the Russian administration, uh, he puts out a report once or twice a day uh, gathered from his various sources. But I have to tell you this, Russia is losing the information war, mm -hmm. is losing the propaganda war. They're very tight-lipped about what's happening, and um, they're just not involved in it. it. You know, at first I was very frustrated. I thought they should be doing a better job of getting their message out to their people in the world, but it's not happening. You know, I, I think about it like this, too. It's kind of like a boxer. You know, you see two two people has, has a style and one boxer says, you know, if I fight his style, I'll lose. So I'm going to make him fight mine. And I think reading um, Vladimir Putin's Empire of Lies speech, which I just read again last night in the context of everything that's going on, and it kind of shed a new light on it. And I think they came to the conclusion very early we know what the U.S. empire does and does well. We're not going to engage them in that arena. We're going to do what we need to do on the ground. We're going to do what we need to do in the physical reality and allow them to do their online space and the things that they do and have confidence that addressing the real world ultimately, and I also believe, and 
um, focusing on their broad alliances through other countries was going to be their focus. So while the U.S. and the empire is focused on hoodwinking their own people with false flags that Sergey Lavrov et al. are out here saying we're going to be talking to the Pakistanis and the Indians and the Chinese and on and on and on. And we'll work in the real world and we'll do our thing and in the long run, see which one works out. What do you think? Well, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I think Russia is uh, ultimately letting their actions on the ground speak for itself. They have decidedly won this war. It's only a matter of time. The other thing that you mentioned that is so important is Lavrov and Putin have been in direct and constant conversations, some in person, with Chinese officials, with Indian officials, Pakistani officials. They have been involved in in, uh, discourse and conversations with Iran, with Syria, Venezuela, many countries in Africa, and in South America. Um, they are focusing on the future. And they know that this conflict in the Ukraine is designed to do a number of things. But number one, destabilize Russia and bring about regime change. That isn't going to happen. The other thing that I keep talking about is the, uh, the alignment of these other countries that we just mentioned are looking to form a new multipolar world with a new economic, political development and military structure that is focused on peace and not war. And the American hegemon cannot accept that. And therefore, this conflict in the Ukraine has to continue to fester on Russia's belly. That's what it's all about. We have literally 60 seconds You're saying that the war will be over soon. How does the war end when the United States will not allow Zelensky to negotiate peace, let alone surrender? Well, uh, militarily, it's going to be over very quickly. Uh, Zelensky is not, he's basically finished. The government will fall or the United States will take him and put him in in some European countries and pretend that it's a a government in exile, but the state of Ukraine is not going to exist in the future as it is composed now. That's my crystal ball view. Got it. Regis Tremblay, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. 
Great peace in Mint Press, Israel's far-right militias pile on the apartheid state's official terror campaign. Israelis feel the work being done by Israel's enormous security apparatus is insufficient, and there are calls for citizens to take up arms. What is even more alarming is that we see the emergence of civilian-run militias already operating in Palestinian communities. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a Mint Press News contributing writer, published author and human rights activist born in Jerusalem. His latest books are The General's Son, Journey of an Israeli in Palestine, and Injustice, the Story of the Holy Land Foundation 5. And he's the author of this piece, Miko Peled. As always, Miko, welcome back. Always a pleasure. Thank you. So you write, the violence that has characterized the state of Israel since its establishment is, without a doubt, extreme and overwhelming. Over the years, Israel has developed many quote, security, end quote, agencies that are renowned for their ruthlessness. Talk about a couple of those agencies and how that history is now manifesting itself in today's reality. Well, uh, thanks for having me again. So to begin with, we've got the Israeli military, the Israeli army, what's called the IDF, which was established when the state of Israel was established in, in May of 1948. And it was really a, co- a collection of uh, Zionist terrorist organizations that were uh, in the process of the ethnic cleansing and genocide of Palestine. Um, when the state was established, they were all put together pretty much and established the Israeli army. So that's the get-go. That's, like, that's step one. And then the, the Israeli army has been involved in, in, in massacres and in campaigns of, of what I would consider genocide and ethnic cleansing, certainly maintaining uh, a, a large part of maintaining the, the apartheid regime that was established in, in Palestine when Israel was established. Then Israel established um, um, a whole host of what they call kind of more secret police types, intelligence uh, agencies. The most well-known on the inside, you know, domestically, is what's called the Shabak, or the, it's a really secret police, uh, which maintain a brutal regime against Palestinians. Again, it's only for Palestinians. Whether they're citizens of Israel or not, this is the, this is the arm that takes care of them, tortures them, interrogates them, collects information, gives them or denies them permission to do what they need to do and so on. Um, and then there are the, there's a well-known Mossad, of course, which is, you know, has been ruthless in assassinating people externally and on and on and on. And as though this is not enough, Israel, uh, Israelis have been demanding more. Uh, they say that the policing, which is done by the Israeli police department, which is a nationalized police force, is not doing enough to curb violence by Palestinian citizens of Israel against Jews. And so even though what we've seen, particularly over the last year, since last May, we've seen massive assaults both by uh, the authorities and by civilian militias against Palestinian uh, communities uh, of citizens, of Palestinian citizens of Israel, um, um, but the Israelis are not, are not satisfied, and so they're establishing more militia. And as we saw over the last uh, couple of weeks, there's been there have been attacks by Palestinians uh, inside what's called you know Israel proper, not the not the West Bank, against Israelis and um, mostly military, but still. 
And uh, Israelis are, again, they're up in arms. They're demanding more. And the prime minister said everybody should carry a gun. And the different mayors of different cities are saying, yes, everybody should carry, everybody who has a license should carry a gun and so forth. And so it's, it's, it's just a horrifying reality where these massive security apparatus uh, is not satisfying the, you know, the thirst for Palestinian blood, so to speak. And they are establishing these militias um, that are walking around. And in this piece that you mentioned, I've got video footage of these, of the marching through Palestinian towns, through Palestinian neighborhoods, uh, terrorizing people right, left, and center, and even killing. There were cases of Palestinians who were killed. You know, Miko, horrifyingly, you know, in, in that, you know, we read story after story where a, a Palestinian was, uh, you know, beaten, killed, murdered, et cetera, by just, a, a, you know, a person, an Israeli on the street. They, you know, they usually refer to them as settlers or, you know, some term like that. But in that there is no justice, there is no accountability. One could make an argument that all Israelis who choose to be are technically part of a giant militia. I mean, if you are, you know, because part of what is a government, a government is able to um, to use force at will. That's how a government has its power over people and everything. Whenever it chooses, it can use it can use force. If you have subjugated that to all people in a country against another group, then in a kind of way, the whole country is a gigantic militia to keep the Palestinians either in line or in some manner terrorized or brutalized. Your thoughts? Yes, absolutely. That's exactly what's happening. Uh, I mean, Israelis will never be punished, will never be held accountable for killing or harming a Palestinian. Um, And so they feel very comfortable, and now they're actually encouraged by the prime minister himself to carry arms. And he even said specifically that, you know, a great deal of the... um, a great deal of the terrorist attacks that were avoided were avoided because citizens were vigilant and were able to neutralize, as they say, the the, the Palestinian, the attacker. Um, and then, you know, they call them settlers, like you say, but really these are Israelis. I mean, the settler, the, the, the political and the ideological um, group that makes up the settlers used to be, you know, uh, you know uh, used to be limited to the West Bank and maybe some parts of East Jerusalem. Now they're everywhere. Now they are on a campaign over the last decade, decade and a half, to go into what are called the, the, the mixed cities, which are cities where there are still predominant, there's still uh, large Palestinian communities as well as Israeli Jewish communities, and to go in and to terrorize and to take over homes and to do everything they possibly can to make life for the Palestinian communities in the cities, which is already pretty miserable, even worse. And last May, we saw them marching, and we saw there were some 500 who were brought into the city of Lid, armed, you know, these guys are armed, they're like a militia. Uh, they were housed at City Hall by the mayor, they were welcomed, and they were walking down the streets with guns uh, like a militia. I mean, they are they are practically a militia, and they're not coming in the south. They're actually wearing. They've got uniforms, and they you couldn't mistake them if you don't if you weren't 100 percent familiar with the different uniforms. They could be mistaken for for police, for cops, for, for for the authorities, but they're not. But you look at their weapons, you look at their vehicles, you look at their at their um, at their uniforms and the other equipment that they have, and you and you wonder where it's coming from and how can they afford it and what the hell is going on here? Since when is this militia? You know who's funding, who's behind this militia, but it's it's very popular now. And you, like you say, any citizen with a gun 
and many citizens carry guns, and guns are very, very readily available, are, uh, uh, can do whatever they want as long as they do it against, to a Palestinian. So looking at the other side of the equation, the Palestinian side, we talked to individuals such as uh, Laith, journalist Laith Marouf uh, in Lebanon, and he's talking about the boiling point and that we're getting now very close to the boiling point here. Do you see that? And so what's happening on the Palestinian side of the equation in response to these atrocities? Well, I think we're far beyond the boiling point. Uh, this month, you know, Ramadan, the holy month of Ramadan, just began for Muslims uh, a few days ago. And if we take a look at what happened last year during Ramadan, last year was in May, so this year it's a little bit earlier. Uh, there was massive, massive violence against Palestinians. It started in Jerusalem and then it expanded to other places. This is exactly what's been happening. Actually, this time it preceded Ramadan by by a couple of weeks, and the violence against Palestinians in the parts of the old city in East Jerusalem where Palestinians frequent, and when they're on their way to prayer, massive assaults, massive amounts of violence by the Israeli authorities and particularly the police, the Jerusalem police, against young Palestinians who are, you know, who are exercising their right to be there, exercising their right to, to pray, exercising their right to travel, and so on. And um, I think we're going to be seeing a lot of more of the violence that we saw, the armed type of resistance that we saw in Israeli cities. We are going to see uh, a great deal of protest, and we're going to see a lot of Palestinian casualties, because there is no other way. The pressure that the Israeli authorities and these, you know, what they call the settler types, these radical uh, Israelis, is, is mounting, and they are, and they are not letting up. And so, there's really nowhere to go for Palestinians but to stand up and, and resist. And actually, to be honest, last May, many of the Palestinian casualties were not even part of protest. They were not; they just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. Musa Hasuna, who was murdered uh, last May in the city of Lid, was just driving home. You know, and he happened to be shot by, he happened to be driving by a, uh, a plaza where the settlers were shooting, and they shot and killed him. And five Israelis were arrested. Two of them had guns that had been shot that night. And that was it. Everybody was released. Nobody was, there, there were no indictments. So this is, you know, a year, almost a year ago. Again, a Palestinian was killed. And some of the others in the, in the, in the city of Bersela and other places where Palestinians were lynched, they just happened to be walking in the wrong place at the wrong time. So a lot of the casualties have nothing to do with Palestinians. And the same thing in Jerusalem. You know, during Ramadan, especially in the after the breaking the fast, you know, it's like Christmas in, 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 in Christian countries, you know, where everything is lit and everybody's celebrating and mm-hmm. it's a big festive atmosphere. Everybody's in the streets. Well, that's when the police come in and start harassing people. So a lot of the people, a lot of the casualties are not, are not, uh, you know, not, don't even, I'm not activists, they're not there to, to do anything. But at the same time, I will have to say, I would, I, I'm, I think we can expect a great deal of uh, resistance from Palestinians and we'll see, you know, we'll see where this leads. But I think the boiling point is, we, we've gone beyond the boiling point. Now it's just a question of, of, of you know, what the casualty count is going to be. And and um, in the U.S., of course, if something like this happened, you could still have a civil option and you could, you know, sue the person civilly in the instance of uh, of, of, uh, of the, the gentleman, I believe his name was Musa uh, Hasuna. Do they have anything like that in, in, in Israel? No. There's no way to sue the the family. I mean, they've got the they've got, they, you know there's the the, the Palestinian human rights groups that try to deal with this. They've got lawyers, but 
you know, the, the police laugh when, when they come, and, and, and the courts laugh when they come. They don't, they don't take them seriously. Another Palestinian who was beaten, uh, he was lynched in his car. I think there's, there's some footage of that also in that same piece. Uh, when he went to the police, they threw him out. He went to the police station to file a complaint, they threw him out. So, I mean, that the authorities are so absolutely clearly one-sided. I mean, you know, I'm thinking, you know, I'm thinking what it must have been for, for black Americans in the South during Jim Crow. I mean, it'd be ridiculous to call the police because even if you did, what would be the point? This is a very similar reality. And, and the violence and the pressure against Palestinians is growing. And everybody knows that Ramadan is particularly a sensitive time. And that is precisely when the pressure is mounted, uh, and that's exactly what happened last year. They want violence. In other words, the Israeli authorities want violence. They want clashes. They want to exact as much blood uh, and the, heaviest, the, the heavier the price that they exact from Palestinians, the more satisfied they are. I mean, they, they had a foreign minister just walking through the old city. They had this radical right-wing, uh, you know, uh, Jewish uh, member of the Knesset going onto the Temple Mount. I mean, they're doing everything they possibly can to instigate, to incite, to get Palestinians to respond. Migo Peled, he joined us to talk about his piece, Israel's far-right militias pile on the apartheid state's official terror campaign. And the other piece, no prevention, no punishment, no justice, the murder of Musa Hasuna by Zionist settlers. You'll find both pieces in Mint Press. Miko Peled, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you, gentlemen. Have a good day. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Antiwar.com has a piece by Patrick Buchanan, of all people, entitled, Is Global Democracy America's Mission? It opens as follows, quote, In the battle between democracy and autocracy, democracies are rising to the moment, and the world is clearly choosing the side of peace and security, said President Joe Biden in his State of the Union address. This is a real test. It's going to take time. Thus, did Biden frame the struggle of our time as the U.S. leading the world's democracies, the camp of the saints against the world's autocrats, the forces of darkness. But is democracy really America's cause? Is autocracy really America's great adversary in the battle for the future? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's an independent journalist, analyst, and author of The Battle of Ukraine and the War It's Part of. You can find that at thepolemicist.net and Counterpunch. Jim Cavanaugh, as always, Jim, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So he writes, not all autocrats, after all, are our enemies, nor are all Democrats our reliable friends. That, to me, is a fabulous point, particularly coming from the pen of Patrick Buchanan. 
Yeah, well, it's obviously true. <laughs> you know, he makes the point that, uh, you know, uh, some of our best friends from Saudi Arabia to Bahrain and to, uh, uh, Middle Eastern monarchies are not democracies and not free countries in that, that sense. And they're our best friends in the world. Look, uh, it's clear. Look at the Ukraine. <laughs> Ukraine. In 2014, the United States helped to overthrow a democratically elected president. And in an election that, the, that NATO observers and the European observers said was a great election. So, you know, in, 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 in Venezuela, the United States threatened sanctions for the country if it held elections and personally threatened opposition candidates if they were going to run against uh, to, to, to if they entered the election and ran against Maduro. So wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Af- after in previous elections, none other than Jimmy Carter himself went to Venezuela and validated that those were some of the freest and fairest elections held in the world. Yep. The best election in the world. Uh, so that was an electoral system when, when and when the when it when it was an electoral system that produced a majority for the opposition in the, in in the Venezuelan assembly that was fine but the next election it when it produced a win for Maduro that was now it's now a democracy and Maduro is a dictator <laughs> so these these notions I mean Buchanan's making a point here another kind of point which is that you know democracy isn't really the essence of what the United States is it's very interesting when he makes that point and that's not what determines who our friends and enemies are and from his point of view that's that's that shouldn't necessarily okay but uh, you know it's important to recognize that this word has become democracy just such a a, a, a fake word it's a hollow word it really just means people we like, regimes that we like and regimes versus regimes that we don't like, and authoritarian. And, and the, what would be the substantive meaning of democracy, even in the simplest sense, which would be free elections, free press, uh, free political contestation, you know, is, is really not what the United States fights for in the world. The United States' job in the world isn't to fight for democracy. It's to fight to maintain the control of elites of the social uh, wealth of nations and of the capital wealth of societies. It's a fight to prevent the capital wealth of society being managed by the people. Democracy is power to people, not election to people. Elections are good, they're part of it, but you know, my rendering of it, democracy is power. And as we know in the United States, we have elections, but we don't have people don't have power. The Princeton study so Jimmy Carter were, uh, uh, verified that we live in an oligarchy where the will of the people is not really representative in the laws that are passed. And so we don't have a structure that really allows power to flow from the people. So that's really the, the main issue. And uh, the United States clearly has – that's not the objective of the United States. That's not what it does. It overthrows governments. It, 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 it violates, quote-unquote, democratic standards in order to protect – regimes it wants to keep in place. You know, I would recommend anyone to read this or to do two things. Read this article. It's an antiwar.com by Patrick Buchanan is global democracy America's mission. 
and then read something else. You can find it online. Vladimir Putin did a speech called The Empire of Lies Speech. Read those two together. It's very clear that what we're talking about is a U.S. US foreign policy, U.S. empire foreign policy that's nothing but a self-serving racket, that it is simply a bunch of lies. Um, I tell you who else really made it, really made some great comments on this too, believe it or not. Bashar al-Assad recently was talking about um, the U.S. empire and U.S. foreign policy in light of using jihadists, using Nazis, that there was no morals here. There was no ethics. There was nothing but we want something and we will tell any lie and we will support the most treacherous creatures on earth to get what we want. And um, I'll say this, though, over the course of the years, I've had a lot of issues ideologically with Patrick Buchanan, but he has, this is not the first brilliant piece that he's written on foreign policy. Your thoughts? Yeah, Buchanan has been sharp on a lot of things. And, you know, he's called out and he's called out the hypocrisy of the Republicans a lot of times. What you say about Putin's speech is really people should read that speech of Putin's. And, you know, people have to realize he, he referred, he said, American academics and commentators have referred to the United States as an empire of lies. He didn't make that that phrase up. He knew and, and got it from critical thinkers in the United States. Uh, I, I, for, I would like, like to go back and see who, who might have done it. might have been William Bloom or somebody, or Chomsky for, for, that, for that matter. But, you know, it, th- this is what we've constructed now. But you used to have some, you know, okay, it's true. We, you know, we have the ability to speak freely. We can get on the radio net right for the moment, you know, and we can say what we think. And that's a good thing that other countries don't have that. That's not exactly democracy. That's that's right. It's part of a democratic structure. But you know, even that is disappearing. And even these these you know, and and anybody who looks at our electoral structure knows what a, what a fake it is. I mean, it's controlled very carefully to production by the elite that who pick candidates who are the stars of the show and put them out there out there for you to vote on. You know, it's like American Idol. So, and we know this. Everybody knows it. So, the idea that we're going to sit back and 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 pose as the arbiters of what's democracy and what's authoritarianism in the world, when our government is pushing daily to restrict speech that can be uh, on, on media and on social media as as much as possible, as much as they want, you know, is is becoming more and more ludicrous and, and harder to sustain uh, daily. And to that point, as uh, people look at uh, Bucha, the most recent story in in terms of conflict in Ukraine, and now the United States is calling uh, President Putin a war criminal, when the United Nations Security Council on two occasions did not allow or vetoed Russia's request or demand for an investigation into this, and now the United States wants to have a war criminal tribunal when the when the United States in the Trump administration sanctioned Fatou Ben Souda, the head of the ICC, the prosecutor of the ICC, for wanting to sanction Israel. So the hypocrisy and the inconsistency here. So as people need to read Buchanan's piece 
And as people need to read President Putin's piece, they need to do that with the better understanding of the United States. In fact, not only sanctioning the ICC, but even threatening to invade the Netherlands. Uh, there's a, they passed a law in 2003 called the Hague it, Invasion exactly. Act. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's a law. And they went, John Bolton went and literally said to the head of the, I know where your family lives. <laughs> he gave a, you know, he, he threatened his family. <laughs> and, you know, so this is, and the United States said when, when, the, when uh, they made uh, statements about American human rights or ICC in, in Afghanistan, and Syria, the Americans said, you know, that doesn't apply to us. We don't, we don't, we don't, we don't recognize that. So now, but then now they want to apply it in this case of Bucha, et cetera. And I recommend people really, if, you know, we've, well, I don't know what happened to Bucha. We have to see what happened to Bucha. But, you know, there are hundreds, I've got to say, at least scores of eyewitness testimony from Mariupol refugees about what's been going on in Mariupol and how the Azov Battalion has been shooting civilians. And they're out there, and they just never show any of it, okay? Right. There's this guy, Patrick Lancaster, who is right. American, who lives there, who does some great work. I recommend people look him up. You know. It's, you know, I don't, these things true or not, but you don't, they don't show any of them. And the minute all they, but they pr- pr- promote anything that the Kiev puts out as a press release becomes the truth. Well, last week, it was chemical weapons. This week, it's uh, crimes in Buc- uh, 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 crimes against humanity in Bucha or wherever. And next week, it's just Ukraine has become the world capital of false flags. So next week, it'll be something else. It may be back to chemical weapons. I don't know. There might be a false flag manufacturing facility. Oh, yeah, I never thought about in, that. In, in, in Ukraine. Russians need to strike that with a missile. <laughs> <laughs> Jim Kavanaugh, as always, man. You might want to invest in a false flag company. Uh, Jim Kavanaugh, as always, thank you. I think that might be called CNN. Uh, uh, thanks, Jim. We really appreciate it. Okay. <laughs> Folks, you've been listening to the Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 